Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. My name is Kelly McFall, and I'm the host of the New Books and Genocide Studies podcast, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. Every month or so, I interview the author of a new or recent book in genocide studies. Today, I'll be talking with Leanne Fuji, author of the book Killing Neighbors, Webs of Violence in Rwanda, published by Cornell University Press. Fuji's book examines the behavior of two small communities in Rwanda during the genocide of 1994. Her conclusions fit the emerging consensus of perpetrator studies, that many people are willing to kill their neighbors for ideology, for money, or for more pedestrian motives, such as jealousy or dislike. In explaining events in Rwanda, her work is careful and thoughtful. But her most important contribution is the metaphor she uses to help explain and contextualize this behavior. Her suggestion that genocide should be viewed as a script and participants as actors playing this script is ingenious. It deserves attention from anyone interested in the basic question of why people choose to kill their neighbors. During the interview, we talked about this and many other aspects of the genocide in Rwanda. I hope it helps you think about genocide in a new way. So, here it is. Hi, Leanne. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks, Kelly. Excellent. Uh, For our listeners, uh, today I'm interviewing Leanne Fuji, author of Killing Neighbors, Webs of Violence in Rwanda, published by Cornell University Press. Leanne spent several months in Rwanda interviewing people in prison for crimes during the Rwandan genocide uh, and writes about that in her book and draws some conclusions that are thoughtful and thought-provoking. Uh, everything a great book should be. I think it's an important new approach to thinking about the behavior of perpetrators or perhaps a book that calls that label into question, one of the things we'll talk about during the interview. So Leanne, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get to be an academic and how did you get to start studying genocide? Wow, those are um, those are big questions. So my path to academia was a little bit um, circuitous. I Um, it's actually a second career for me. And, uh, my first career, believe it or not, was in the theater. I was, uh, actor, director, and acting teacher. And I did a kind of a, I sort of retired from that and ended up in high tech for a while. I was living in the Bay area. And, um, during that period, I realized that there were two things that didn't really interest me. And that was, um, technology and making money. So I sort of realized that was not a very good fit, and I ended up going back to school just to do a master's. And so this actually um, leads me to your second question. Um, I went back to do a master's. I had no idea about Ph.D. school or anything about academia, actually. And I was I think it was at the Christmas break. This was in 1999 in San Francisco, and I heard an NPR interview with Philip Gurevich, and they were interviewing him about his then recently released book on the Rwandan genocide. Uh, We regret to inform you that tomorrow we will be killed with our families. And I listened to that interview 
and this was the millennium. So, you know, everybody was traveling. Um, some friends, we all met up in, in New Mexico, of course. And I bought, we went to the bookstore to buy uh, some fun reading. And so this is going to tell you a lot about me. My fun reading was I picked up off the shelf um, Gurevich's book and Adam Hochschild's book on the Congo, which was mm -hmm. also recently released at the time. And I remember this page in Gurevich's book. First of all, it's it's beautifully written, and so it was a pleasure to read in that sense. But I remember this page where he spoke about Hutu and Tutsi as not being, anthropologically speaking, distinct um, ethnic groups. And at the time, I didn't even know what that meant, anthropologically speaking. I didn't know what that meant at all. But I remember thinking to myself that it was fascinating, this idea of creating a target for genocide out of whole cloth, it seemed. Um, because before that, really, honestly, I was just a little bit of a Holocaustophile, maybe not even a little bit. Um, so even before I went back, to school and then became an academic, I had read popular literature, mostly memoirs from, uh, from Holocaust survivors. So I already had some kind of interest. I can't really explain that. But what I think Gurevich's book did, it's, it's heavily criticized and rightly so for many reasons. But what it did for me was it made me immediately want to know more. I knew nothing. So I started off knowing nothing about Rwanda. And and it then became the basis for my master's thesis. And then from there, I might be anticipating some of your next questions. <laughs> I did decide to go to Ph.D. school because I, one of the things I discovered was I really enjoyed the research process. And so unlike a lot of my colleagues, when I got to Ph.D. school, I already knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to do primary research in Rwanda, which I I obviously wasn't able to do as, as a master's student. And so this book talks about the micro level. How did you end up deciding that that was what you were most interested in? So I thought, um, I mean, this is one thing I think that is great about, you know, the actual training process they make you go through is that you really have to, you really do have to sort of pursue, at least in your mind, all the different possibilities. Um, I think I knew that there was something about how personal it seemed or how, how intimate the violence was, that that question, that that particular puzzle really gripped me. And, and then as I started thinking about it some more, there was something else that gripped me even more than, say, the the physical intimacy of the violence, you know, the, the fact that it wasn't done at long range or in some kind of industrial way. But this other thing was the social intimacy. So that idea that people knew each other and that, that was a thing that really, once I sort of figured that out, that it was clear that that's what I was um, most fascinated by. And so that's sort of what got me to the micro level. I, I didn't start out that way. I'm not trained, actually, as, a, as an anthropologist um, or even a sociologist. I'm, I'm actually in political science. So that was just something I sort of came to while I wrestled with trying to put together a dissertation proposal. Yeah, I, I was actually about to ask you, what, what, how, 
how does being a political scientist shape how you approach this kind of material? Well, I'm not, I would say that in my discipline, um, there's not always, well, it's changing now, I think. And more and more political scientists, I think, take history a little more seriously. And also there's much more, just like in Holocaust studies, there's this emerging literature looking at the violence of war and genocide from this micro level. Mm -hmm. But at the time, I think this was, you know, we were all kind of doing it for the first time for our discipline. And I think I was mostly influenced by really well-known Rwanda scholars, mostly Americans, um, and, but also some Belgians. Um, and I was really influenced by their, the work that they had done and the kind of work they had done. And those people are all people who are extremely, I mean, some of them are historians. Alison mm-hmm. was a historian. David Newberry is a historian. Um, but Catherine Newberry is also, believe it or not, a political scientist. Hmm. But her work is, is so careful and um, it's so historically informed, as is, of course, David Newberry's work, um, Alison DeForge's work, and I think, and Rene Le Marchand's work, and, and others, and Philip Rangen's work, and Daniel Delam's work, and all the people I'm forgetting to name right now. <laughs> work is so historically warm that I, that, I think, where I got most of my influence in terms of how I approached um, becoming. I think, a Rwanda scholar. I mean, those people are very intimidating in terms of how much they know and how careful they are. And I think it was such a great model for me to follow, actually. Yeah, it's so... So the I, I wasn't really influenced by my <laughs> That's... I'm intrigued. So what does that do now? Does that, so you're still a political scientist, right? I'm, I'm in the political science department now at university of Toronto. Um, I joined them about a year and a half ago mm-hmm. from the political science department at George Washington university. And I guess, um, you know, I think there's, 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 again, it's changing a little bit in our discipline. And I think that um, people do appreciate that, studying Rwanda and being um, nominally an expert in, in a region that's, that's difficult um, mm-hmm. both historically and contemporaneously in terms of the complexity of the politics, but also just how difficult it is as a place to just spend many months <laughs> doing this kind of research. And, and I think that people in our discipline at least uh, respect that. And, um, and, and I think the other thing that people in my discipline have been receptive to is that is even though I don't, I don't look a lot like a political scientist, they still, I think, appreciate, um, you know, I tried to be really mindful about how systematic I was. And I think that um, my discipline, people in my discipline, even, even if they don't quite understand the kind of methods and methodology I use, they at mm-hmm. least understand systematicity Mm-hmm. And so I think like that's how I'm able to um, be accepted. But I also think um, there's nothing that kind of ar- arcane or 
hard to understand about killing neighbors, literally. So, you know, as we like to say, my dependent variable um, is not that difficult to understand. You don't have to be an expert in political violence to understand what's what's happening here. I think you do have to wrestle a lot with things that most people don't like to think about, and that is how you end up with these kinds of outcomes. And I think that people sort of um, across disciplines, um, whether it's historians, anthropologists, sociologists, I, I feel at least that we all, all of us who study mass violence or political violence, I think that we all have, um, no matter what our backgrounds are, I think we all have respect for one another. And I think we're all happy and willing to learn from each other. So I never think about it. It never occurs to me to think, oh, that guy's a historian. I don't need to read him. Mm -hmm. Oh, gee, I don't care about sociologists reading me. I mean, you know, I think that any of us who, who study genocide or political violence, I think we're, we're happy to learn from whoever has, um, you know, some answers or some insight or even a theoretical framework or an approach or a way of looking at evidence. Um, I think we're all happy. We, I don't think we care what, what discipline, you know, another scholar comes from. Yeah, it's, that, that is a blessing. It's also in some ways a challenge, right? Because we've got to be familiar with a variety of different disciplines and a variety of different methodologies and to be able to engage them intelligently and thoughtfully. And um, that that poses a challenge just in terms of the basic t amount of time you have available. Yeah, I think that's true. I think one thing about genocide studies, though, is that it started, it always was a multidisciplinary um, sort of subfield, I guess. And so people are, are more interested in kind of, you know, what, what, you're, what you're looking at, what you're investigating, what kinds of questions you're looking at, and what kinds of evidence you're using to come up with your argument. I think people in genocide states care more about that than actual, for instance, historians aren't going to buy an argument that doesn't seem historically insensitive. And, and I know that. And so for me, Having David Newberry, for instance, as a reader was really very helpful because his standards, you know, are, are very high. So I kind of feel like if I can meet his standards in some way, my, my book, I don't think of it as a history. Mm -hmm. It's certainly not a history of the genocide. And I'm, I'm not even sure it's really a history of these two communities. But I think that if I can at least use evidence in a way that an historian can appreciate and accept then I feel like I'm, I must be doing something okay. Yeah, well, it's you, you're clearly are doing something okay. It's a great book. Um, you said something I was I, I kind of perked up my ears because I, and I'm going to paraphrase here because I don't remember exactly what you said, but but you said that neighbors killing neighbors is not so hard to understand, and I think kind of casual observers or readers about genocide would 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 kind of strongly resist that kind of a statement. Right. And I and yet I think it makes a lot of sense in the way you put it. There's a there's a basic humanness to what you're studying yeah. that that everybody can relate to even if they can't understand. And so so your book sets out to understand at least this is my read of it, how neighbors could kill neighbors and or, or more broadly, how neighbors, how people in the same community who knew each other, who had grown up together or or knew each other before the genocide, um, 
how they interacted during this period of extreme violence. Um, how did you go set out to go about answering that question? First of all, I think that's a great um, summary. That's a great two-line summary of the book. Um, so I would say it was a long process, but I think that I knew from the beginning that I did want to look at the violence um, and the the sociology of the violence in a sense. And um, so I had, I, I think I already had sort of an affinity for that aspect of the violence. I was much less interested in higher level questions. And my colleague, um, Scott Strauss, uh, his book came out uh, a couple years before mine. And I felt like, you know, thank God he did the things he did because you know, I could build directly off of, I didn't have to revisit a lot of the important questions that he asked and answered. And I could build directly off of his work. And so I think that also allowed me to have this very, very micro focus, even more micro than Scott's book, and look at how people, exactly how you just said, um, how they responded. Um, my influence for the research design of the book was uh, was the work of uh, a scholar at UC Irvine named Kristen Monroe. And she actually studies altruism. And her altruists are rescuers of Jews during the genocide. And her work is fascinating. I actually I discovered it accidentally while I was studying for comps. Um, so that's one, you know, vote for comps. <laughs> that's pretty much the only one I can find. But So she had a way of looking at altruism that made sense to me. And I sort of took her research design for altruism and I sort of flipped it around and kind of came up with this idea of how I could look at um, how people, all the different ways that people could have, might have responded and participated in the genocide from, say, the least violent to the most violent. And when I got to Rwanda, so I had this sort of very pretty worked out research design and this whole spectrum of, of, of um, violent action that I thought I'd worked out beautifully and, you know, tried to think of everything I could, possibly be on the spectrum. And I get there and I sort of, I, and I'm not kidding, it just never occurred to me until I got there and I was I, sitting in my apartment and it dawned on me that nobody would come to me in the categories that I had already set <laughs> and and that nobody was you know going to come to me and say I'm you know I'll shoot I didn't I didn't kill anybody but I looted you know from my neighbor's house and mm -hmm. I I mean it's it seems silly you know looking back but that that moment was really a really scary moment for me and I remember I wrote this long email I thought the only person who can rescue me ironically is uh, um, no pun intended is Kristen Monroe simply because. I had based my research design on her so she would understand what I was trying to do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, much to her credit, I got this wonderful email back from her the next day and it, it sort of put me at ease and, and, you know, it sort of, she sort of gave me permission to let go of this kind of beautifully worked out research design and just, you know, she just said to me in so many words um, to just go talk to people who are willing to talk to me. And it was through that process that I realized what was interesting wasn't that people 
were that I could slot people on this big spectrum. What was way more interesting was that they moved from category to category or that they mm. glided more than one category or that they, they hopped from different points of the spectrum at different times, depending on the context. And so what, what was interesting wasn't my beautiful categories. What was interesting actually became the way in which people defied those categories or that categorical scheme. Yeah. How did, how did you find people to interview? Well, I knew that I wanted, um, a spectrum of responses, meaning the the kind of widest range of responses. And because I had read her work, I think I realized that I actually wanted everybody all the way to in, including rescuers if I could. So I actually, there was a, um, there was a book out by um, an NGO named Af- uh, called African rights. And they had published mm-hmm. a volume in French on um, rescuers and um and so I felt like, okay, here's, here's, you know, here are some stories of rescuers. And I thought, well, maybe I could, you know, maybe I could find a community that where I could, you know, find rescuers. So I read these stories and then I kind of followed, excuse me, one of the stories. And, and um, I met with one of the people in the book and then I sort of um, tried to figure out, is this, could I do, you know, her community or community near where she lives, this kind of thing. And then I knew that I wanted to do two different um, sites. So one of the things that I had known, that I had learned from having done my master's thesis was I just knew that there was a really strong regionalism in Rwanda. And that was a really, really important and significant part of the political history of the country. So I knew I wanted to be in both those different regions. And so um, it was a matter of kind of knowing that ahead of time that I wanted to be in these two different regions, but also that once I found one community with a rescuer, then I knew that my other community needed to also, you know, I needed a place where I could also sort of identify a rescuer. I mean, I knew that I could always find people who had confessed to participating in the genocide. That wasn't very hard, but um, I also needed um, another research site in the North of the country where I knew that I could find um you know, rescuers. And so it started off by just sort of reading this book and then kind of doing, you know, it's a lot of accidental um, and serendipitous kinds of um, poking around and visiting places and, and talking to a lot of people, to be honest. I mean, it's, it's almost like, like you get to the field and it's not like you get off the plane, um, get over jet lag, um, get in a talk to people. Like there's, there's this long, long, you know, preparatory period where you're just talking to anybody who will talk to you Mm -hmm. ideas about places and then to actually get in a car and think, could I drive that far on this dirt road every single day? And I kind of realized, to be honest, that that I had a limit to how far off a main road that I was willing to go. I had this really Mm -hmm. old part of it. So there were all these, I had multiple things driving my choice of these two different research sites. And and I was just lucky enough to to meet most of the criteria that I was that I was looking for. And and sadly, another thing that made it easy was that, I mean, there are as as a friend and colleague in Rwanda, a Rwandan friend and colleague told me, you know, there's killers on every hill. Yeah, it's <clears throat> excuse me, and I, 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 
I'm going to talk about the or ask you to talk about the two local communities you focus on in a minute. But just uh, kind of take a break from from the academic part of your book. What what on a personal level was it like talking to those killers on every hill, or at least people who participated or watched? What how did you deal with that personally? Well, I mean, I I think you know how it would be. Um, I think it's funny because, so I should explain the situation for people who haven't yet read the book. The, there were lots of people imprisoned in the aftermath of the genocide. And, and I have no doubt that many were imprisoned on, on false accusations. And I have no doubt that many um, may, may have been falsely accused of doing one thing, but may well have done another bad thing. Um, so that people in these prisons and whom I needed to interview, and they had self-identified them, you know, identified themselves. They had self-identified as participants in the genocide, and they did it because the state was offering them strong incentives to voluntarily confess in exchange for the possibility for consideration of a shortened sentence. And most of the people that I talked to um, in 2004, many of them had been in prison almost like seven, eight, nine years already without any adjudication of their dossiers. So a lot of them thought this was much, you know, I mean, I had no doubt that a lot of them decided to confess strategic reasons. So, um, but going back to your question, it's funny, the only image I had of going to a prison was having watched movies about U.S. prisons. And to be honest, I didn't know how I would be able to manage that with this kind of imagery in my head of, of U.S. prisons, like Folsom State, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and so it turns out that Rwandan prisons are, are again, just the absolute opposite of, of even the nicest prison or jail in the U.S., and so it wasn't at all a threatening environment. So that was the thing I think I was most kind of afraid of in a sense. And then what you got was, um, I mean, I think the only people who sort of upset me ironically were people who I felt were playing me. And, um, but I, I sort of, what I would do in those cases was I could make decisions about whether I wanted to continue to interview those people and so in a sense, if I felt like all they were doing was playing me, then I could just not ask to speak to them again. And that's how that was some people. But in terms of the content of the interviews and, and the personal toll, I mean, at the time I was so invested in getting my data and sort of getting out of there and going home that, and, and it's not the case that the interviews end up being you know, these, these graphic, it's not like the movies in that sense. Um, you're not listening to ironically graphic testimony and it's the prisons were not a threatening place to be in. Um, they, they located in the towns. We could oftentimes just walk there from the guest house. And so in, in some ways they were a very easy place, um, to do interviews because, you know, they would, I, I was able to work in a private room and people would just come. We'd, we'd ask for certain people and they would go get them and they would come. And so in many ways it was, it was one of the easiest places where we did interviews. But I would say that um, the hardest thing was kind of getting past 
it wasn't listening to gory details. It was actually getting past um, this kind of vague, um, detailless narratives, mm-hmm. these kind of washed out narratives, um, when you knew that they knew way more than what they were saying to you, and they weren't going to tell you any of that. Yeah, I I remember reading Christopher Browning's book. Yeah. And having him talk about the challenges of working, in his case, with transcripts, but in either way, with people who had social and legal and economic stakes in the conversation and, and personal psychological ones and trying to parse their words and figure out what was true and what was not and what they thought was true but might not be and what they thought was not true but might have been true. And um, and it's a, a fascinating challenge. I, you, um, Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to add one thing, which was mm-hmm. um, just to be a little more responsive to your question. I think that there were ways that I just wasn't aware of that it was affecting me. I mean, for one thing, for me personally, it it wasn't that fun to live in that particular country at that particular time. This is way before Skype. This is way before you could just call back to the space you know, with the good, you know, wireless network. So um, it was hard. That part of it was was really really hard. But I remember at the time that Frontline, the second Frontline special on Rwanda, which you probably know, um, Ghost of mm-hmm. Rwanda had just come out, and um, and and there was, you know, somebody had one of my friends or colleagues had a copy of the CD, and you could find someone who had a, you know, you could play it on your computer or you could watch it on someone's TV, and um, I had no interest for a long time. I I. Um, I had no interest at all. I think it took me at least two years after I got back to even watch it. Hmm. And, um, and I think it showed up in those moments where I knew there were things that I just didn't, um, want, um, want to see. I think it's one thing to listen. I think it's another to sort of, you know, have the visuals. Um, and, and I just didn't want to see that movie for a really, really long time. Mm-hmm. So you start your book by explaining a couple of the different theories that have been put forward to explain how people in communities can commit violence against each other. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what they are and, 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 and what you see as their strengths and weaknesses? Yeah, I so from surveying the literature and I, and what struck me most, I think, and again, it, things would be so different if I were doing it today because the literature has come a lot, a lot, a long way since then. Mm-hmm. At the time, you know, there was violence breaking out in all these, um, you know, quote unquote, inscrutable places starting in, and especially for the U.S., you know, starting in Somalia. So we had, you know, Bush's a uh, thousand points of light, I think he said. And then, you know, in this humanitarian mission in Somalia that ends up going all wrong the following. And this is followed quickly by the start of the war in Bosnia, the, you know, the war in Croatia, the war in, you know, well, for Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia. And then you've got, um, you know, you just have so many things going on at this moment when, you know, after the Berlin Wall falls and the Soviet Union collapses, it seems like, you know, it's so, this is why I tell my students, you know, this was a moment of such, of such hope and and grandeur because you know sort of um, democracy had prevailed and all these things and so the world was this is the what I try to 
impress on my students, the world was, there was a lot going on and you're the last remaining superpower and you're Clinton and you're in the state department and you're really excited to be president. And, but there's, you know, there are all these things going on nonstop. They're happening simultaneously in parts of the world where nobody seems to know hardly anything about the political histories, the players, the context, the policy of it. And so it was, you know, there there was just, there there was just so much going on that um, now I'm lost. You're going to have to repeat your question because now (laughs) it's gone. In, okay, so let me rephrase that. In that context where there's so much going on, and, and, and in particular where where academics are watching societies right. maybe collapse, maybe disintegrate, maybe just having groups commit violence against each other, uh, you've got these academics coming, attempting to explain yes. how that's happening. And, and you pick on – well, that's not fair. You select two as explanations that have been put forward to account for this. You know, given so scholars are, are in some ways just like everybody else. I mean, unless you find a handful of experts who are experts on these actual places, and just because you're an expert on Burundi doesn't make you an expert on Rwanda mm-hmm. necessarily. So just because you're an expert on East Africa doesn't make you an expert on the Horn. And so I think that's and so scholars are reading journalistic accounts. Um, you know, I don't know what State Department people are reading, but in any case, you know, we all kind of suffer from this. Um, general lack of knowledge of of actual deep um, nuanced knowledge about places and people that are going on and things are really happening at a really fast clip. So I think what really stood to the top very quickly was this idea, you know, the boiling cauldron um, idea, this idea that, you know, communism had really kept a lid on things and boy, you just, you get rid of communism and that lid just blows off and look what happens. You know, all this stuff just just starts exploding. And it was really this kind of model of, of, of explosive violence, you know, that had been contained by these real authoritarian communist regimes. And, and I think, you know, and I think this, you know, insofar as a lot of the reporting and even scholarly work does come from the U.S. and from American scholars, you know, there is this sense that from afar, it looks like, wow, you know, these these, these tribal wars or these uh, mm-hmm. the same kind of appellations that were applied to Bosnia, by the way, that these people and, and you know, Warren Christopher saying about Bo- these people have been killing themselves, killing each other for thousands of years. I mean, these are actual statements. Yeah. It's about two clicks of, you know, um, uh, through Google. And so this was the kind of common wisdom about what was going on was that there, so it seemed like there were, it was ethnicity at work. This is mm-hmm. how ethnicity worked. This is what it was doing. Um, it had been contained or held in place uh, by, you know, the Soviets and by Tito and the former Yugoslavia. And, and once the, the Soviet Union goes away and Tito dies, then, you know, you've just got mayhem. And, um, and and in Africa, it was just kind of, I mean, oddly enough, violence in Africa among Africans is always seen, I think, in some ways as, as normal. But the Rwandan genocide happened in the same year that the first fully, you know, democratic elections in South Africa were happening. And so 
you know, on the, on one end of the continent is this, you know, most amazing moment of transition. And then, you know, further north towards Nairobi, where everybody was transiting through is, is what, you know, people didn't even know what to call it at the time. And so I think that we started off with these really facile understandings, which quickly grew into this kind of common wisdom about what was going on in all these parts of the world, not just Rwanda. And I think that when you get to places like Africa, what happens is it just, it just is the working common sense that, that there is, and even if it's more nuanced than that, the idea is that ethnicity is something that makes people do really bad things. And my hunch was that was really wrong. And, um, and so it wasn't so much that I went out to test those hypotheses, but I was really, if it's not that, if that's not what's happening, then how is ethnicity operating? And so I took on what I call the ethnic hatred thesis and the ethnic fear thesis, which is similar, which is that people will, you know, in times of insecurity, i.e. war, state failure, um, attack, invasion, that people will naturally, in quotes, um, kind of, you know, cling to their own, their own group, their own leaders. And, and, and then they'll suddenly become afraid of people from that other group as if ethnic boundaries were sort of, you know, fixed and lasting and durable and, and, you know, and not porous and flexible and socially constructed, et cetera, et cetera. So I was trying to, you know, my hunch was that those theses, which I think had a lot of traction at some point and maybe still do in some parts of the world, were just not, um, they were so powerful in the, in, I think in the popular imaginary. And so I was trying to take on what I thought were two really kind of, um, two theses that people uh, were really wedded to at some level. Yeah, I'm actually talking about Rwanda in my classes now. And, 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 and if my students, 19, 20, 21, for the most part, know anything about Rwanda, it's through movies. Yeah. It's through Hotel Rwanda. Yeah possibly sometimes in April. Uh, and, and that's what you get from those movies, that this is, this is an ethnic conflict. Um, and that's really all you need to know. Yeah. You, you say no, as you just said, and you say we need to see genocide as a process rather than an event, and that we need to see the behavior of people, at least on an individual level, as acting out a script. Can you talk about what you mean by those two things? Let's see. Um, So genocide as a process, I think what I meant by that was that I think we think of events as being, again, self-contained and um, just sort of happening in a sense, um, kind of a moment of combustion, um, kind of more mechanical. Um, you put these two things together and you get, you know, an explosion kind of thing. Whereas I think what's important about looking at political violence, not just genocide as a process, is that you sort of see not just, I'm not going to use the word buildup. I'm going to say what you see is there's a pathway towards the violence itself. And that pathway is part of the, the whole violent process. Um, it's not separate from, and it cannot be separated from, I think, analytically. And that buildup has itself 
things within it. So it's not just, I think we oftentimes think, boy, you stick X, Y, and Z external objective factors together and you mix them in a bowl and you get this outcome. I think, so I'm trying to say that that's not how it works, that Mm -hmm. part of this process as it unfolds, people are changing sides. People are getting different ideas. People are, their politics are changing. Their interests are changing. Where they see themselves is changing. Their sense of their security is changing. And so if we actually trace that, we see that it's actually a dynamic process. We also see that none of these outcomes are inevitable. That at any moment, I hope I say this someplace in the book, um, that at any moment you could interrupt that process. Mm-hmm. You could, you know, push the trajectory in a different way, which I think me and a lot of other Rwanda scholars would say it was never inevitable. It was never a done deal, um, even after the plane crash. I think we all mm-hmm. believe that. And so if you look at it as a process, you see how dynamic and contingent. Um, I think that's what historians teach us, you know, the contingency of events. And I think that's that's what's so important about looking at it as a process. In terms of this notion of a script, so that goes back to how I wanted to conceptualize ethnicity. So in the literature, I mean, in some of the literatures, and again, there's there's many important exceptions, um, uh, you know, people who whose work I think is very constant with mine. But what I was taking on was this, and, and this, is, this oftentimes happens in political science, is this very facile treatment of ethnicity as, as a factor, as a, again, as an objective state of being, mm-hmm. as, as more or less a property that we all come with. Um, and, you know, as a biological immutable property that, again, makes us do, do certain things at certain moments. And so I was trying to conceptualize. So in my through through the process of my interviews and my research, I found that that was not the case. But what I needed was was some kind of concept to think about. Well, then what am I trying to get at? And what I noticed is was this idea that people were pressured very strongly um, to go along with the program. And the, once the program was genocide, there was a lot of pressure to go along or look like, or at least look like you were going along with that program. And so there are stories, Alison DeForge used to tell amazing stories about, you know, people who would show up at a roadblock in the morning because every single morning, because they want, and, and who may have even participated, watched, helped bury a victim at one of those roadblocks to make sure that nobody suspected that they were hiding family members or neighbors in their house, back at the house. And so I thought, well, what, what is this? Um, okay. So, so in my mind, it was working like, you know, I put on the coat. So I look like I'm doing my job. I'm at the, you know, I'm showing up at the roadblock. I'm, I'm looking like I'm with the program and um, I'm saying the right things. I'm doing the right things. I'm showing up at the right time. And then at home, I'm still the same person, but at home I'm, I'm, you know, I'm trying to find food for the people I'm hiding in the house. So what do we call that? This is, you know, these are the same people doing these things. Um, It's not one set of people at the roadblock and another set of people rescuing. It's the same people. So, so how do we conceptualize how ethnicity, is operating in, in those moments and, and um, or throughout the genocide. So the only thing to think of was this idea of, of 
you know, that really it's, it's almost like a performance is what you're doing. You know, you're making sure you're looking like you're, you're going along with the program. And that was really important. It was, you know, people didn't just know you were going along. You had to show people you were going along with the program so that you wouldn't be threatened. And so I, I was trying to conceptualize that kind of process and mechanism as opposed to ethnicity being something kind of stable and fixed, a stable and fixed property of a person where from which we could more or less predict what they're going to do in a particular situation. I'm saying, no, it's this really, um, well, what's happening during the genocide was people were making sure they, they let other people know, yes, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And then at home, they were doing something quite different. I, I have to say, I had no idea before we talked that, that you had a theater background and that, at least may explain a lot about why you chose that as a kind of explanatory framework. I think it works really well. One of the things you say in the book is that what that does, what, what looking at this as a script does is allow us to understand how local uh, ordinary people, I guess, to use that phrase, can take a script that is being handed to them by central authorities and can interpret it in their own way and can act around the edges or can take some agency for themselves and, and, and act in ways that's not really intended by the central government. Is, am, am I reading that correctly? Yeah, totally. Yeah. That's a great read of it. I think that the idea there is that we, we, I think there was this idea in the beginning that the, I, I had this idea certainly when I was working on my master's thesis, I think there was this idea that the, that the, President's plane goes down on April 6, 1994, and killing starts in Kigali. And then the genocide kind of takes off like wildfire everywhere else. That, you know, it's just a machine and it just goes on automatic. And I think, you know, Scott Strauss um, actually laid the groundwork for our understanding of actually how complex the patterns of killing were across the country, even after the plane crash happens, even after the three or four days of intense, tense killing in Kigali, in the capital. And so it, it you know, I think that we have to um, think about those complexities and have a way of understanding that it wasn't a machine. It wasn't sort of straightforward. People, people knew, oh, okay, they listened to the radio and then they went out and sort of followed orders because that also feeds into another kind of, I think, foil that I had in the back of my mind, which was this obedience foil, which, which gets laid on, um, you know, the Holocaust and Germans and, you know, this idea that, oh yeah, these people were really obedient. It's a very obedient culture. And so people, of course, when, when that was going on in the, in the capital, then of course people picked up their machetes, they listened to the radio and they went to next door and they hacked up their neighbor. I mean, this is completely crazy. And data of, of my work and, and my colleagues' works, none of the data um, you know, indicate that that is at all true. So, so if that's not happening, then what is happening? And I think what's clear from all these levels of, of research that all of us have done um, is that at every level, at every level of the, of the administrative network, of the administrative hierarchy, at every social level, you have people who have more power than others, and therefore people who have power over others. And those are the people, the people that the genesis empowered are the people who 
could use the genocide and how they carried out that the genocide as as a way of basically consolidating power or even you know increasing their local power over the people in their communities. And so that's the kind of thing that I saw happening was this idea of, you know, what could be more powerful than someone having the power to decide, you know what, I know it's a genocide and I know the orders are to kill Tutsi, but actually I don't like you, you, and you, and I know you're Hutu, but that's the way it is. What could be more powerful than that? What could be more powerful than somebody coming to you and saying, hey, my wife is Tutsi. Do you think you can spare her? Do you think you can get the killers off her back? And what could be more powerful than saying, okay, pay me, you know, pay me something, bring me some beer. Okay, done. What could be more powerful than that, than having the power to decide who lives and who dies? Yeah, I was struck. You talk about a man named Jude. Uh, I've forgotten which of the two communities he was from, but and the fact that he even was willing to accept, uh, uh, I don't know, a few, several, I've forgotten the exact number of uh, Tutsis into the Interahamwe, right. which just seems extraordinary. Right. Um, I, so, you know, I I can't say that I, I talk to a lot of people. I mean, I, I interviewed this one guy and who Tutsi and who had been in prison for being part of these uh, one of these killing groups. And so he was the one who said to me, and I have no reason not to believe him because I have no reason to, to know why he would lie about something like that. But I, you know, I asked him straight out whether he was the only one. And he said, uh, he said, no, there are others. I mean, it wasn't a huge number, but there were. And since then, since I've gone back to do additional research for a new book, um, I've, I've talked to more people and I've heard more stories about that. Again, we're not talking large numbers, but the fact that it happened at all indicates there are other mechanisms at work at the local level. Once again, there are other things happening besides kind of the official line. And, and I think that's really important to consider that that could even be possible. I have to say, I was, I was really shocked by that. I was really shocked by that. I knew there were a lot of Interhamway who had, Tutsi wives. Like I knew that. I'd read that. I knew that. Um, I mean, they even talk about that in Hotel Rwanda. So I knew that. Um, but I didn't know until I did my research actually that there were Tutsi who who joined, um, you know, local local level um, killing groups. Yeah, you. <laughs> One of the points you make about this is that how people engage in violence can help explain why they did it. And you talk in particular about killing as a group activity. How? What do you mean by that, that killing is a group activity? So I started to think about how people killed as a way to explain why they did it. Um, so motive... Um, and, and when I say the literature has, you know, it's come a long way. I think one of the things that we now all recognize, including, you know, those of us in political sciences, motive doesn't really explain any outcome because violence kind of subsumes lots and lots of different motives and even contradictory motives within the same person. So you can't sort of explain a violent outcome by simply looking at, you know, people, participants, motives, because um, motives can change over time and place. 
um, and they can be contradictory. So in one moment, you might have the motive to, you know, show that you're a really good killer. And in another, you might have, you know, you might be motivated to do just the opposite. So we can't really rely on motive um, to explain, um, you know, how people are, how and why people are doing these things. So I spoke with this one uh, guy who was just a confessed killer. And he said there were three, he goes, there were basically three reasons why people participated. And when, you know, when an interviewee says things like that, you start writing it down. You know, I said, well, what, what, what are the three? He said they were either forced and meaning they had no choice or they went well, or he, or he said, or they didn't think about it. And he, and I said, which one, which category were you in? And he said, in the third one. And then I thought about that. I thought, hmm, didn't think about it. And then I thought, well, how is that possible? How is it possible you don't think about engaging in really serious violence? And that's when I started to think about, well, how did, I knew a lot about this one killing that he and others had been involved in. And, and I knew, I knew um, a lot of different versions of the story. And so I was able to piece together what I you know, what I thought happened. And again, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, how do you, I'm thinking about this particular guy um, and, and his answer for his own actions. And I thought, well, you know, if you start breaking it down into, again, sort of just, you know, step by step, and you start to see what's happening or the dynamics that are happening in each step, and you sort of see, you know, I, I, I oftentimes tell students, um, or if I'm talking about my book, I oftentimes say, you know, it wasn't the case that people woke up every morning and said, you know, I'm going to go get me a Tutsi, you know, like we, we would imagine in a movie or sometimes, it, you know, like Holocaust, the Holocaust is depicted that way. You know, these kind of blood-curdling, bloodthirsty, you know, Nazi killers. Mm-hmm. We, I think actually we want to believe that that's true because only people like that, you know, would ever kill because the rest of us would ever do that. And I think that, that that's also kind of false. So I had to think about this guy. And, and when you broke it down into the process, what started to stand out to me was this idea that, you know, this was a man who I think, you know, he probably didn't have, I talked to a lot of people who um, didn't have any education at all. And he might have been, would have been influenced by others' opinions. He certainly wouldn't have sat at home and thought about what to do, given all the rumors that were flying around, given, you know, a local attack by the rebel group in town. He wouldn't have, you know, he, there was this whole process of, of, of working in groups. They had all, they, for months they had been going out in groups and the night patrols, um, even Tutsi participated in these night patrols in the beginning. So there already was kind of, you know, this practice of um, these are also communal societies, obviously. So this idea of doing things in groups is, is nothing novel. This is this is very ordinary. But now you're talking about this very extreme situation of war and attack and 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 a great amount of insecurity. So I feel like at that point the stakes must be so much higher. The uncertainty must be so much. And get wrong, you know. I mean, we have to remember what the stakes are of getting getting it wrong, guessing wrong. In those moments, I feel like it's even more important to meet up with the rest of the group. And at each point, this idea that the group kind of, you know, you sort of bow or you just kind of let others decide, and then 
um, you sort of go along. And I kept thinking about this guy. Boy, he goes along at that moment. And then the next thing that happens, he goes along to that. And then they meet up and they decide which time they're going to go to this other guy's house who is supposed to be hiding Tootsie. And then he goes along with that. And then he shows up at the house at the appointed hour. And then somebody tells him, hey, surround the house, you know, go to the back door. Okay, go, you know, and, and I'm just thinking, Oh, I see. I see. So I was able to sort of like, you know, break down even that little mini process of that one incident and sort of see, oh, I see it actually is possible that he didn't know that they were going to go kill his neighbor. Hmm. Um, but that he also and I thought this this actually made a lot of sense. I said, did you know this man? Yes. Was he you know, he he was my neighbor. Were you friends with him, too? Yeah, you know, we did. We used to drink beer together, etc. Did you think he was hiding people in his house? Hiding, you know. Um, and he said no. And then he said, "But I wasn't sure." And I think that's that's the key right there. I wasn't sure. So to make sure, he went along with the rest of the group, and then that group ended up killing the man. Because huh. they found nobody in the house, but they ended up killing this man. But the point is like, that it was imaginable that he didn't go with some intention to kill a Tuesday neighbor. That he went along and each step, you know, sort of led, kind of pushed the momentum along to the next step. And once, and, and um, I think all of us know, even from our own experiences, I know social psychologists know this, although I don't, I confess I don't use that literature. But I think we know even from our own lives that, you know, we do things in groups that we don't do as individuals and that we do get pulled along in groups. We know that from being teenagers. We know that from, you know, being colleagues in small departments. And, and we know that from watching the movies. And so... What was important was that these things were being done in groups and there was something about that this was a group activity and that the groups themselves exerted a certain amount of pressure on the people in the groups as they continued to do these violent things. So this is where I'm going to invoke, you know, Christopher Browning's work because I feel like it's similar, completely different context, but I think a very similar dynamic was happening with his police battalion. Yeah, it's. I was. I was actually getting ready to ask that. So, so if if non-specialists have read anything about this kind of thing, they've read Browning or or maybe James Waller. Are you? Do you see this as complementing their work or kind of extending it? Or where does your work fit? I think that um, I like the idea. I, I I'm a big fan of Christopher Browning's book and. I so I see it very much complementing his, and I think what it does is it gives me more confidence that the kind of dynamics that I identify that I that I identify from looking more inductively at my data, um, I think it gives me more confidence that that you know I, I, it wasn't the case that I was reading his book over and over while I analyzed I had read it years before. And so it wasn't that I was really influenced by Browning's argument while I was looking at my data while I was writing my book. It was the case that I reread it right before I went to press. And I remember, I, you know, of course I was invoking him and saying this is consistent with, with um, you know, with studies of other genocides, just to show that this wasn't mm-hmm. just about a genocide or the Rwandan genocide in particular. But then I reread his book to make sure I was actually saying the right thing. As- <laughs> 
And then I was, I've been more um, blown away by how consistent the arguments were and how consistent those, um, you know, these are such different kinds of contexts. And yet there were such similar, you know, dynamics going on. These aren't so much top down dynamics. I think that's what his book draws out so well. These, you know, in some ways, these are very much kind of horizontal um, dynamics and, but they're very powerful in those moments. Yeah, one one of the things his, as I recall, and it's been several years since I've read it. One of the things he he makes a point of in his book is that these are the people who have uh, the, the 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 people who are members of the police battalion who 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 rounded up and killed Jews in Eastern Europe that he's studying were exactly the people who were least likely to believe the kind of ideas being propagated by the regime. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm wondering about your case. Is to what degree does ethnicity matter or does ethnic to what degree does ethnicity provide a valuable framework even if it's not exclusively true or, or how would you evaluate ethnicity as an explanation now um that's a good question i i guess i think it has i i guess i would tend to treat it more like um a kind of ideological scheme so it depends again what what kind such a loaded term. So I think in the book I talk about I, I kind of try and even typologize what kinds of ethnicity we're talking about when we invoke that term. And one of the phrases that I use is, is state-sponsored ethnicity because there's a way in which people acted toward the state. I mean there were lots of situations before the genocide in which people had to self-identify in a certain way. And in fact, one of the ways that children, I asked a lot of questions about how people first learned they were Hutu or Tutsi or that there were things were, you know, these things called Hutu and Tutsi. And the answers, that was probably one of the favorite, my favorite parts of the research. And the answers were really revealing. I mean, most people said a very similar age, they were about eight or nine. And, um, and that, that's when they, and, and some of the people learned it at school or, or they saw other people, other children learn it at school in a really cruel way. And that is teachers would, would sometimes have students, you know, um, separate themselves, you know, Tutsi on one side, Hutu on the other. And there would be kids in the middle who just didn't know what they were. And then the, the kids, and this is a very awful story, but the kids and the, teach, and the teachers would, would make fun of the, those kids. They'd be humiliated, basically. Then they would run home and find out, you know, am I Hutu or Tutsi? And, and then the next thing I would ask is, well, what, what did those words mean to you? What did those terms, those names mean to you? A lot of people didn't know. They just said, I, I just knew that, you know, I mean, I think what they learned was they had to know what they were and they had, they knew that, um, they knew that they knew it was something important to know, but not necessarily what the content of it was. And so I think that when we use that term, I mean, I think that there's a scholar named, um, he works on Eastern Europe, um, he's a sociologist, Roger Sprubaker. I love his work, and I always assign this one piece that he has, which has this great title, Ethnicity Without Groups. And he basically is talking to scholars in that piece, and he's kind of urging everybody, as he makes the same argument about nationalism, that these aren't things that we're studying. We're studying a set of practices and beliefs. And so they exist only because we treat them as if they really are things in the world. Um, and so it matters 
how we, what we do and how we see people, which is precisely the only answer to the question of how is it possible during a genocide that Tutsi can join the side of the killers instead of the victims. Because, precisely because it is, you know, I don't want to say the term flexible, um, but because it is, these terms have meaning because of the meaning we give them in a given context. And those meanings never are fixed. They are, you know, they are basically tied to the context in which they're generated or, or deployed. And so that's what I think. I think it's the very, um, I guess, I, for want of a better term, malleability of ethnicity that made it such a threat during the genocide, in a sense. Mm-hmm. It's precisely because I can accuse you of having had grandparents who changed their identity cards. Were that not possible, how could I even make that accusation? Um, but the fact I can make that accusation means that I can also make you a target, even though your identity card says Hutu on it. Or I can decide, because I can, because I have the power to decide that no matter what your card says, you just look to me, you look a certain way, and I'm going to call that way Tutsi, and that's going to be the basis for having you killed or whatever. So, you know, it's, it's, I would say what it is, is it's the kind of making of ethnicity or making ethnic claims that we should be studying. It's the way that people invoke it, whether it's in Rwanda or the U.S. or, you know, the Balkans or wherever. But it's it's basically, you know, these are these are terms that have meaning because we as people decide and treat them like they have certain meanings. And if we didn't, then they would be devoid. They would literally be nonsense. And if you think about invoking terms that literally have no meaning in some context, you know, so I don't walk around Bosnia saying, you know, I'm Hutu or Tutsi. Are you Hutu or Tutsi? That because it doesn't make any sense. Those mm-hmm. have meaning, um, you know, outside of of these places where they and and even in the places where they have meaning, they don't have just one set of meanings. In fact, they have lots of different meanings. Again, back to this thing about context. So I would say, you know, what we need to be looking at is the making of or the attempts at deploying these as if were things. And, um, you know, Force Helps, my colleague Chip Genyon has written this terrific book about the Balkans. And, you know, he said one way to deconstruct big meanings of, about social categories is to use violence is a way of, you know, redoing the meaning of terms. It's a very terrible way. It's a very destructive way. But that is a very effective way at doing the meaning of, of existing social categories. So I would say that, it, that it's in some ways, you know, it's less variable, meaning a causal variable. And it's really more important to look at its own thing, study, um, as I said thing, but you know what I mean. <laughs> well, this has all been really fascinating. I wish we had could talk more, but we've taken up a lot of your time. Just let me ask one more question, because um, I know you're in Sarajevo now. What are you working on now? So I have I'm working on a new book, and it basically was um, inspired by I think Killing Neighbors. 
I was interested um, to do a comparative study that built on the findings from the Rwanda book and to see whether or not the kinds of local processes and dynamics that I saw in my two small research sites in Rwanda actually um, apply anywhere else. In the same way I was talking about how my findings were really consistent with, uh, or how my argument was really consistent with Browning's argument. So I started off as doing a comparison with Bosnia for obvious reasons that it's happening contemporaneously. There's also this history of people living together um, and, and there's, you know, um, all this local local level violence going on. And yet it's different at the same time. It's very, very different. It's a very, very different place. Um, but I, so it started off as just kind of this comparison. And then I decided I, I really didn't want to be kind of a, an expert in one region and an a interloper in the other. I ended up adding, adding a third case, which has complicated it, but in some ways I think made it, um, made it more interesting. And that's the case as well. There was this trio of lynchings that occurred in the eastern shore of Maryland um, in the 1930s. And believe it or not, there are still people alive today who are alive at that time. Most of them were, were pretty young, but certainly old to, to have memories of that and very sharp memories of that time. And so I'm looking at, again, I'm looking at local processes of violence, um, but I'm not so much, I'm not trying to compare types of violence. I'm not comparing a lynching to a genocide. I'm actually, what I'm doing is I'm taking an episode from each of these different contexts. So now each of those places is a context, is, is sort of the background for taking um, an episode from each place and actually trying to trace the processes of local involvement in the violence in each of those places and trying to see if we can actually draw out, once again, an argument about general processes and dynamics that lead people to do these really awful things. Well, that just sounds great. I look forward to it. And I hope that when you're done, you'll come back and talk with us about that book. I'd love to. <laughs> well, that'd be great. But thank you so much. I, I appreciate it. And I know our listeners do. And it's been great talking to you. And um, let me just wish you happy research and a happy stay in Bosnia. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Kelly. All right. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Leanne Fuji, author of the book, Killing Neighbors, Webs of Violence in Rwanda. I hope you enjoyed my talk with her today, and that you'll return to listen to more interviews on the New Books and Genocide Studies podcast, part of the New Books Network.